I was really thinking and learning a lot about how we can do better with our online learning. And I came across a video on YouTube by an anthropology professor named Michael Wesch. And he talked about one of the things he does for his students. He will actually uh, read aloud from the students' textbooks whenever he wants them to really study or think about something. This enables them to be able to listen to the text from wherever they are, if they're um, jogging or if they're taking a walk or if they're in the car headed to work. And um, he felt like it opened up the opportunities for them to dig deeper into the text, as well as another issue. Um, he felt like um, by reading aloud, he was able to point out some of the critical attributes of the text that he wanted them to focus on. So I am giving you that opportunity as well. Um, you'll note that this article was published in 1995, and it really references 20 years prior to that, which seems to be pretty old in terms of research. But I wanted to kind of defend why I chose this piece. This article and Camburn in terms of the conditions of learning for literacy is a gold standard piece of research. It's one of the things that um, is like a, a foundational piece of research that it's really important to consider whenever you're looking at anything in terms of literacy. And um, so I'm going to begin reading and make sure that I offer you an additional opportunity to learn. Brian Camborn, Toward an Educationally Relevant Theory of Literacy Learning, 20 Years of Inquiry. In this article, Camborn reviews and expands upon his well-known conditions of literacy learning, particularly as they apply to the teaching of literacy. And as you are listening today, I want you to be thinking about, he's going to lay out some background in this first section of the article about how he came to believe these things. And I want you to think about where are your beliefs? What is your theory of teaching for literacy? And be thinking, too, about what does this have to do with when we transition to online learning and the conditions that we provide for students for literacy there as well? He begins, since the early 1970s, I've been conducting research in natural settings. I've collected data from classrooms, homes, backyards, and supermarkets. The general focus of this research has been children learning literacy. Essentially, I've been motivated by the need to find an educationally relevant theory of learning. This motivation is not recent. It first emerged when I was a young teacher, and I made an observation that both surprised and confused me. It was this. Many of the children I taught found school learning extremely difficult, especially reading and writing. However, within this group, there was a significant number who seemed capable of successful learning in the world outside of school. I was continually surprised and confused by students who didn't seem to be able to learn the simplest concepts associated with reading, writing, spelling, or math, who nevertheless showed evidence of being able to learn and apply much more complex knowledge and skill in the everyday world. The popular wisdom at the time added to my confusion. The prevailing explanation of why these children failed to learn in school was couched in terms like deficit or deficiency. In summary form, this explanation was bullet number one, 
Otherwise, normal students who fail to learn in school are deficient in some way. Bullet number two, this deficiency comprised either a tangible neurological impairment, a less tangible disabling learning condition, which was typically given an esoteric scientific label, a cultural deficiency, or all of the above. This popular wisdom conflicted with what I observed day after day in my own classroom. I knew from my conversations and interactions with these children that they did not display such deficits when it came to understanding and mastering the skills, tactics, and knowledge of complex sports like cricket or sight-reading music or running a successful after-school lawn mowing business or reading and understanding the racing guide or calculating the odds and probabilities associated with card games or speaking and translating across two or three language, languages. Although these contradictions caused me some intellectual unrest, I was too young and inexperienced to know how to resolve them. 20 years later, when I was conducting research into language acquisition, I again confronted the same issue. At the time, I wrote this in my personal journal. He says, learning how to talk, that is, learning how to control the language of the culture into which one has been born is a stunning intellectual achievement of incredible complexity. It involves fine degrees of perceptual discrimination. It depends upon abstract levels of transfer and generalization being continually made. It demands that incredible amounts be stored in memory for instant retrieval. It necessitates high degrees of automaticity of very complex processes. Despite this complexity, as, learning enterprise, as a learning enterprise, it is almost universally successful, extremely rapid, usually effortless, painless, and furthermore, it's extremely durable. I'm just going to stop to think aloud for a second. First of all, that this guy wrote about this and has his journey journal from 20 years ago is pretty impre- impressive. But I'm also struck by how that last sentence, um, almost universally successful, extremely rapid, usually effortless, painless, and furthermore, extremely durable. I wish that the way I taught could um, have that same kind of result with teaching with my kids, that it would, would, would be that effortless, would be that rapid. So he continues, this was the same issue that had confused me as a young teacher, namely, how could a brain which could master such complex learning in the world outside of school be considered deficient with respect to the kinds of learning that were supposed to occur inside the school? This time, I was neither young nor inexperienced. I'd learned at least three things in the intervening years. First, I'd learned the discontinuities that existed between everyday learning and school learning could be better explained as a result of pedagogies that were employed in each setting. Oh my gosh, I'm taken aback by this. And it's kind of hard to hear. Essentially, he's saying that what's happening with learning is a direct result of how people are teaching. 
better explained as the result of pedagogies that were employed in each setting. Wow. His second point. Second, I'd learned that all pedagogies are ultimately driven by a theory of learning. Accordingly, I tried to identify the theory of learning that drove the pedagogy I had used as a young teacher. So this is really why I wanted us to read this article. Because I think whenever we choose the way we go about teaching literacy in our classrooms, and we are looking at materials, or we are selecting textbooks, or we are deciding how we're going to design the lesson, the way we make those decisions is a result of or caused by this theory of learning. And sometimes it's been a while since we thought about what our theory was. Sometimes the last time we thought about that was when we had to write a job application and put a, a, a blurb in there about what our philosophies of teaching and learning were. As you listen to this last section, you're going to see that some of the things that he talks about that his theories were really don't sound very nice. I discovered I relied on a learning theory that could be summarized as thus. Bullet number one, learning is essentially a process of habit formation. Number two, complex habits are best formed in other words, learned, if they are broken down into sequences of smaller, less complex, simpler habits and presented to the learners in graded sequencing of increasing complexity. Number three, habits are best formed by associating a desired response with the appropriate stimulus. Bullet number four, strong association leads to strong habits. Bullet five, Associative strength is a function and frequency of pairing an appropriate stimulus with an appropriate response. In other words, practice makes purpose. Perfect. Bullet number six. Inappropriate responses, in other words, approximations, are incipient bad habits and must be extinguished before they firm up and become fixed. Number seven. Learners are too immature or underdeveloped to make decisions about their learning. So the process must be directed and controlled by the teacher. A lot of those things, when I started reading, I was found myself nodding and thinking, well, yeah, that makes sense. Well, yes, that's what they told us to do in teacher school. But then as the list continued, it sounded more and more insulting to the learner. So what I'd like for you to think about, I want you to return to that beginning part of the article and think about it a little bit more deeply and, and say, which one of those do you agree with and which one of those sound a little bit problematic? 